Well, I want to say a brief word of welcome to you. Uh, it is good to be here worshiping with you all this Sunday morning. Uh, later on in today's service, uh, or later on at the end of today's service, we've got some cool things going on. If you're here as a guest today, today is a special Sunday that we call Soup Sunday. Uh, and so there are like dozens of pots of delicious soup cooking over there on the other side of the building. Um, and after our service is over, we're going to do a brief congregational meeting. Um, and, and then um, we will go and enjoy some lunch together. And I'd love to invite you to start thinking about that now. Not in a way that you stop paying attention to God's word, but start thinking about that in a way to say, if you came today as a guest and you weren't planning to stay for lunch, uh, I just want to invite you in advance. We'd love to get a chance to meet you, to spend a few minutes with you, and to enjoy some tasty soups along with you today. So that's coming up in a few minutes, um, and we'd love to invite you to be here for that. Um, I don't know if you have heard of uh, these events that they sometimes host on college campuses called Stump the Chump. You ever heard of one of these? Sometimes campus ministry organizations, Christian organizations, uh, maybe like Crew or InterVarsity or um, RUF might host these events uh, in, in which Christian students on campus uh, have an opportunity to invite their skeptical friends from campus to come and ask their most skeptical, most challenging, most difficult questions to a pastor or a gospel minister or something like that. Uh, and, and, and these events are often designed in such a way uh, that when the question is asked, the pastor or the minister gets a chance to try to answer the question, uh, and then part of what makes it fun is the whole group is given an opportunity to vote by show of hands whether the questioner stumped the chump. Uh, and if the questioner has stumped the chump on the stage, they win a candy prize or something like that. These are fun events. I've never participated in one myself, but I would love to participate either on stage or on the other side of this. It would be fun. Um, about 2,000 years ago, in the city of Jerusalem, in the Second Temple, on a Tuesday, and not just any old Tuesday... On a Tuesday leading up to the weekend of the Passover feast, the weekend in which Jesus would be crucified, many of the religious leaders of the time and place, not just college students who were curious, but many of the religious leaders of that time and place gathered together with their own version of a Stump the Chump seminar a Q&A, question and answer session with Jesus Christ. One main difference, however, between the Stump the Chump events that are often held on college campuses today and that Stump the Chump event that was held on that Tuesday in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago is that the atmosphere was not warm and friendly and inviting. These religious leaders who have gathered together to ask their most challenging questions to Jesus are not doing it merely out of good humor. And they're not doing it even with a desire to learn from Jesus or to be illuminated by Him. Rather, chapter 22, verse 16 tells us, uh, rather, verse 15 tells us 
they were trying to entangle Jesus in his words. As we're continuing in our church's sermon series through the book of Matthew, we've seen this escalating conflict, if you will. These escalating challenges between the religious leaders of the day and Jesus as the religious leaders of the day have shifted gears and are no longer just annoyed with Jesus. They are seeking a way to have him eliminated. And now here in the temple, they are asking their questions, not just with a desire to learn, not just for the sport of it, but seeking to trap Jesus To trap him in words that might make him unpopular with the crowds. Or if not that, with words that might make him unpopular with the Roman authorities. And as we listen into this question and answer session that took place in this holy week 2,000 years ago. I want us to pay attention to the issues that are raised and also to the profound and liberating and life-giving answers that Jesus responds with so that we can walk away not just with curiosity peaked, but so that we can walk away nourished, strengthened, freed, enlivened by the teaching of our Lord Jesus himself. We'll notice four issues that are raised in this series of questions That unfolds here in our text. The first issue goes something like this. Jesus, we've got questions about politics and taxes. Thank you. I assume that was a sympathy chuckle. I'll insert this here. I know these are dangerous topics to talk about. Um, People who do polls and things like that, discovered that from about 2015 to about 2021, nearly unprecedented or or relatively unprecedented numbers of people decided to leave their church family that they worshipped with because their church's teaching didn't line up with their political party's views of things. But in that same time period, the people who do the polls found that pretty much nobody left their political party because their political party's teachings didn't line up with their church's teaching. Maybe that says something. And maybe it alarms us to the dangers that might be present without even being noticed in our own hearts as we come to a passage like this and as we listen in to these questions about politics And taxes. Who's asking these questions in Matthew chapter 22? It's interesting. There are two groups of people. An unlikely pair of allies. Disciples of the Pharisees. And those who are called in verse 16 Herodians. This pair of unlikely allies are from different parties in their time, place, and culture with different or even opposite views of politics and taxes. Herodians are called Herodians because they support Herod. They're pro-government people. They're very practical, very pragmatic. If Herod can help us, then we'll help Herod. We don't care how immoral he may be. 
We don't care how opposed he might be to our scriptures. If Herod can help us, we'll help Herod. The Herodians were all in on politics and taxes and their guy who was in charge in the region at the time. On the other hand, the Pharisees, who had a much more complicated relationship with government and taxes and things like that, for conscientious reasons, the Pharisees were always skeptical about Roman authority in Jerusalem and the surrounding territories. And so here you've got two groups of people with kind of polar opposite views of government and politics and taxes aligned together with one purpose. We want to stump this chump. We want to see if there's some way to trip up this fellow who showed up in town a few days ago with people crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And so they bring their dangerous question to Jesus. They present it very politely. Verse 16, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. So tell us. Tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why do you put me to the test? He sees through. He sees through what's going on with these different parties that both want to claim his allegiance Or at least trip him up for not saying the things the way that their party says them. He sees through the smoke of what's going on. Jesus, aware of their malice, why do you put me to the test? He says, show me the coin for the tax. Isn't this fascinating? As Christians, we understand that this is the one through whom the universe was created. And he doesn't have a coin in his pocket. He's got to ask somebody else in his own poverty. Someone show me what one of these coins looks like. Let's take a look at it together. They bring him a denarius. And Jesus says, well, whose likeness and inscription do you find on this coin? They say Caesar's. And then he says to them, these profound Liberating and life-giving words. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled. They left him and they went away. Who, Who was asking this question in Matthew 22? Two parties in Jesus' day, both of whom wanted his allegiance or at least wanted to be able to trip him up for not saying things the way that they said them. Who asks questions like this in our day? I think it's fair to say we all do, right? Jesus, we have our questions about politics and taxes. And Jesus, we have our party allegiances. And Jesus, we want to make sure that you support my party. But could it be that today, in the 21st century, as in the 1st century, Jesus sees through the smoke 
And he refuses to be made a mascot for any of the political parties vying for his allegiance. And could it be that his profound and liberating and life-giving words spoken into the context of those asking him political questions about taxes in his own day might also be profound, liberating, and life-giving words for us in the 21st century today? What are those words? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, And to God, the things that are God's. Notice this answer doesn't exactly play by the rules of either of the parties who are asking him. It doesn't fit comfortably or entirely within either of the party systems in front of him. In fact, in a way, it subverts both of them. Because Jesus' answer calls not for a simplistic approach to things, but it calls for what we might call participation in society with a higher allegiance. There's a participation in society that Jesus directs. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Your governing authorities are asking for taxes. Whose image is printed on the dollar bills? Give it back to them. Participate. And surely one of the Pharisees wants to say, Are you kidding me? Don't you know what Caesar stands for? Don't you know the injustices that he perpetuates? Jesus says, Whose picture is it on the coin? Participate. Get involved. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. There's a certain kind of participation in society that Jesus directs his disciples toward. But notice, it's not an unquestioning allegiance to Caesar. In fact, while Jesus calls those who will listen to participate... He prohibits those who listen from giving their unqualified allegiance to Caesar. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but there's a qualification here. Make sure you are giving to God what belongs to God. If Caesar has been able to stamp his image on these coins, give them all back. You might be the happier for it. But if God has stamped his image on your soul, then make sure your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength are devoted not primarily to Caesar and his party, but primarily to God in whose image you are made. Participate, but participate as one who has a higher allegiance than those who are a part of any of the parties standing in front of you is Jesus' message to those in his day. And I suspect he has something awfully similar to say to us today as well.
You see, here's the thing. When we read a passage like this, there's probably a, you know, a knee-jerk reaction. It's just the first thing that happens. There's a knee-jerk reaction that will go on in most of us right now, living in this era of political divisiveness, of political hostilities. There is a knee-jerk reaction that wants to say, that's right. The people from that other party who claim to be Christians, well, they better get with the program and get busy devoting their lives, their hearts, their souls, their minds, their strength to God. And the assumption built into that is that if they would only devote themselves to God, they would view taxes and politics the same way that I view taxes and politics. We begin to think that if someone is really a Christian, then they've got to agree with me on political party issues. But do you see how things are kind of already getting turned upside down at that point? Who's ultimate here? If my party becomes the standard of who's a Christian, could something be a little bit backwards and upside down? And so this passage, instead of being used first as a way of laughing amongst ourselves and those who agree politically and saying they need to change their views, maybe this passage functions best for us as Christians when we first allow it to deeply function as a mirror in which we say, Jesus, what are you saying to my heart, to my soul, to my mind, and to my strength? Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Under under God, the things that belong to God. When I was in my early 20s, I participated in the early version of this church family. Um, it was planted by uh, my, my friend Tab, uh, a mentor and a friend of mine to this day. And when I was in my early 20s, um, Tab would often preach these sermons, which I kind of tuned out of because I thought they were irrelevant. And there was a certain theme that he seemed to preach on that never caught me with a certain kind of relevance at the time. And he would say things like, he, he would talk about politics, and he would challenge us to make sure that we are putting our trust in the Lord and not in chariots. To put our trust in the Lord and not in politicians. To put our trust in the Lord and not in politics. And sometimes I would roll my eyes and I would even think to myself, what a narrow-minded way to talk about things. But the more that time has gone on, and the more that I have seen political parties' fears take control of people's lives, and once again, I know everybody's like, yeah, that's right, that party uses fear to control people. Mirror, folks, mirror. The way that I have seen political parties' fears take control of people's hearts, souls, mind, energy, strength, and actions, the more I've realized the importance of what Tab was getting at when he was begging our congregation and begging me 
be sure that you put your trust in the Lord and not in political parties, not in politicians. Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots. You know who wrote that? David, a king. Somebody who had used horses and chariots and political means. But he saw the emptiness of it all apart from the Lord. And so he calls us some trust in horses, some trust in chariots. (laughs) But we... We will trust in the Lord, our God. Brothers and sisters, here is the teaching of Jesus that silences his critics. We want to know if you'll support my party 100%, and if not, we're sure we can catch you. Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But give to God your ultimate allegiance. Give to God the things that belong to God. Here's the first issue that this passage puts in front of us. People come and they say, Jesus, we've got questions about politics and taxes. And Jesus responds in such a way with this profound, liberating and life-giving answer. Yes, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Participate. But render to God what is God's. Issue number one has been raised and nobody has yet stumped the chump. Issue number two, Jesus, we've got questions about theology and resurrection. This one gets a little bit more comical, right? Now it comes along another party, another group, called the Sadducees, they come and and Matthew wants to remind us, just in case people from other cultures are reading this book, people like you and me who aren't from his time and place, he wants to make sure we understand what's going on here. And so he tells us in verse 23, some of the Sadducees came to him. By the way, the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. You might want to know that before you hear more of this story. The Sadducees were a um, a religious group in their day. We might say a denomination in modern terms. They were a denomination of Jewish folks who put a high premium on teaching the Bible and only what the Bible says. Don't come bother me with all of this tradition stuff like the Pharisees lean on. We want only what's in the Bible. And then they got more specific than that. People who are specific tend to like to get more specific, right? They got more specific than that. And they would say, only talk to me about what are in the five books of Moses at the beginning of the Hebrew Bible. If you can't prove it to me from the books of Moses, then it's not legit. And they felt from their perspective that this warranted in them A view of the world that says this life is what it is all about. And religion is good. And God is real. And following his word matters. But why does it matter? It matters for living a happy life now. Because they argue, sure, Daniel talks about a resurrection on the last day in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, blah, blah, blah. Show it to me in the books of Moses. So they're skeptical about the resurrection. They believe that this life 
is the life in which God's promises are fulfilled. And this life is the life in which it all matters. And so with their skepticism about the resurrection and with their skepticism about spiritual things like angels and demons and heaven and hell and all of that, they come to Jesus and they say, teacher, let's talk about Moses for a minute. Let's talk about Moses. And, you know, if a man were to die having no children, you know that Moses says, and they're not wrong in describing a, a part of the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 25, that describes what we call leveret marriage. Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, how about this scenario, Jesus? And they put together their cute little scenario designed to show how ridiculous it would be to believe in life after death and resurrection and heaven and hell and all of that stuff. If we're following the law of Moses... And a man dies, his brother marries his widow. But what if he dies and his brother marries the widow and he dies and so on. And she's married seven brothers in a row as a way of obeying Deuteronomy 25. Isn't it ridiculous to believe in heaven and hell and life after death and all of that, Jesus? Come on. Jesus hears their question about religion, theology, and resurrection. And he answers them in a profound, liberating, and life-giving way. He replies in verse 29 by saying, You are wrong. Can I pause on that for one second? I've been describing these descriptions as liberating and life-giving. Have you ever considered that it might be liberating and life-giving to find out you're wrong about something? <laughs> if it's Jesus who shows us we're wrong, it's not the end of the world. It's not the worst thing that can happen. It's not even something that will wreck your day. Jesus says, actually, you're wrong. Actually, you're wrong. Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And then he goes on to explain his meaning in a little more in a little more detail. He, let me let me begin with the scriptures and then come back to the power of God portion. Jesus goes to a quotation from Exodus chapter three verse five from one of those five books of Moses that they believe in. That's a strategic move if you're talking to someone who say who says, I only believe in the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. All right, how about Exodus chapter 3? And he draws their attention to the fact that God himself, so this isn't something where like one of the priests might have messed it up. God himself says, I am the God of Abe, Isaac, and Jacob. And the argument is profound, not only because he's found a place where God says, I am their God in the present tense. I mean, that's part of the argument. But there's much more to it. I mean, think about it. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob received massive promises from God. 
massive promises from God. How much of those promises had they each seen by the time they died? Only a small slice. And so if God's name is good, if God's name is trustworthy, if God can say, let me tell you who I am, Moses, and this is why you can trust me, then God has to be saying that there is more to life than this life. God has to be a God of resurrection, of life beyond death, of making all things new. Otherwise, this whole business of making the descendants of Abraham as numerous as stars of the sky, it was hogwash when when Abraham died. If God's name is to be trusted, he must be the God of the living, the God of life. And the God of life beyond even this life. So he shows them from the scriptures themselves. God claims to be the God of those who have died. And he still is their God. And he will be forevermore. But then he goes on to talk about this issue of the power of God. The power of God in this issue of marriage. Now... This would be a delightful passage to teach at a marriage retreat or a marriage seminar someday. And we could have some interesting discussions about it. Because sometimes people read this passage and they're like, wait a second. Jesus says there's no marriage in heaven? That means that heaven is worse than this life. If you like your marriage, at least. But Jesus says... You have failed to understand the resurrection power of God. If God is making all things new and he made something as good as marriage in this life. And then Jesus tells us in the next life. There will be no marrying or given in marriage. It can't mean that the next life is worse than this one. It must mean that what God is going to raise up in the harvest of the new heavens and the new earth is something even more deeply satisfying and joy-giving and life-giving than marriage itself. If you believe that you found a loophole by talking about marriage in this way, then you just don't understand the resurrection power of the God who says, I am still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is so much more to life than what we experience in this life. And praise God for that. Isn't that good news? That's not discounting what we do in this life or how we live But Jesus is unapologetically all in on this idea of resurrection. In fact, John Stott says it this way. Christianity is in its very essence. Whittle down everything else about Christianity. You know what it is? Christianity is in its very essence a resurrection religion. That's what it is to its deepest core. That's what it stands for. That's what it represents. Who was asking this question in Jesus' day? Sadducees. 
people who believed that this life is all there is. Who asks questions like this today? I do think a great many of our neighbors, if not some of us here today, end up having a perspective that sounds an awful lot like the Sadducees' perspective. Most of my neighbors would be very happy if we invited their kids over to our house and we told their parents in advance, we're going to talk to them about the Ten Commandments. Don't lie, don't steal, don't murder, at least if you frame them that way. If you get into the whole no gods before me, might get a little controversial, but you know. Most of our neighbors would be happy for Katie and I to teach their kids about morals. But some of our neighbors would be profoundly uncomfortable with us telling our neighbors' kids about heaven and hell and life after death. Why? Because while a great many of our neighbors say, yeah, sure, I believe in God, but can we stick to the God is good and he helps us in hard times and let's try not to lie and let's try not to be terrible people side of things? And can we be a little bit quieter about heaven, hell, angels, demons, afterlife and all that stuff? Kind of freaks us out. And here comes the clarity of Jesus. Of course there are people who say things like that in our culture. There were people who said things like that in very religious ways in Jesus' day as well. But Jesus responds with this profound, liberating, and life-giving perspective. If we think that this life is all there is to living, then you don't yet know the scriptures or the resurrection power of God that they reveal. And so it is that still today, many come to Jesus saying, we have a question about this whole resurrection business. And still today, Jesus says, you are wrong. Good news. You are wrong about that. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Two issues have been raised and so far nobody has stumped the chump. A third issue A third set of questions. Jesus, we've got questions about ethics and God's commandments. This opens up in verse 34. It's interesting. Earlier, the Pharisees sent their disciples along with the Herodians. Not quite clear why. But now the Pharisees are like, yeah, he silenced the Sadducees. Let's jump in on this. I mean, they they were sitting at the back, not planning to come to the microphone. But now that he embarrassed the Sadducees, is our shot. They gather together, and one of them, a lawyer, asks Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, I don't really know, and I'm always, I try to be careful to distinguish between, like, this is what the Bible says, and this is what I, this is like my speculation. So this part's just my speculation. I kind of wonder, because so many Pharisees were there when Jesus was doing the Sermon on the Mount thing. So many Pharisees were there, and it was memorable for them because the core of the Sermon on the Mount was a critique of Pharisaical religion. And I kind of wonder if some of them heard Jesus 
preached this whole sermon, which had kind of as one of its high points, this teaching about do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I kind of wonder if some of the Pharisees heard Jesus' teaching about loving your neighbor and they were like, we've found, we've found what will trip him up. He's only focused on love for other people. He's neglected the deeper issues of the law. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I kind of wonder if that's part of the gist of their question. In any case, it was a question that was commonly debated by rabbis in rabbinical circles before Jesus' day and for hundreds of years after Jesus' day. This was a normal question that rabbis would ask one another in order to test one another. And here's Jesus' profound, liberating, and life-giving answer. He says to them, you want to know what the core of the commandments is? The core of the commandments is this, you shall love. And he notices this link. The core of all the commandments is you shall love. And there's a couple ways that you shall love works out. One of them is of utmost importance. Recited daily and repeatedly by Jewish people. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything about who you are should be lovingly devoted to God. But you shall love has other application points as well that shouldn't be overlooked. There's a second commandment like the first. It's second because it's not as important, but it's like the first because these things are linked together in a world created by God and full of people who are made in his image. You shall love. Point 1A, love the Lord your God. You shall love. Point B, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Two quotations from the law of Moses, which Jesus can aptly say is the summary of everything else in the law and in all of the prophets. It all boils down to these twin application points. You shall love. Which, of course, became a foundation for all Christian ethics that follow. You shall love the Lord your God, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's more I can say, but I'm a little bit conscious of time, and I know we've got grade school kids with us today, and I'm a little bit worried, and there's soup that you're going to start smelling in a couple minutes. So let me hasten on to a fourth issue here. We've seen already that... um, That these questions have been brought. These issues have been raised. Issues about politics and taxes. Issues about ethics. Excuse me. Issues about theology and resurrection. Issues about ethics 
and God's commandments. And Jesus has shown light on all of these topics. In fact, let me pause just long enough to tie some of these things together with something that the author C.S. Lewis insightfully said in one of his essays on poetry. C.S. Lewis said these words, which are actually engraved now in, uh, in a famous place in England in memory of him. C.S. Lewis says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. There's a sense so far in this passage that Jesus is giving us these profound, liberating, and life-giving teachings so that we can learn to see everything else in life in light of Christianity, in light of His teaching, in light of who He is. He's helping us see everything. But now... Perhaps some of the Pharisees have mustaches because Jesus says, I must ask you a question. Kids, you got to enjoy that, right? That was good, right? Thank you. Those of you who just woke up, ask your neighbor. But now Jesus turns the table and he's got a question to put in front of those who have been questioning him. He turns the tables. There's a question of great importance that all of these other important questions haven't yet answered. There's a question that is even more important than all of them. And the question is simply this. In verse 42, what do you think about the Christ? Look, even if we can learn a ton about politics and taxes from Jesus, and even if we can learn a ton about theology and resurrection from Jesus, and even if we can learn a lot about ethics and commandments and how we live our lives, there is still a question of ultimate importance that needs to be answered, that must be answered. And the question is this, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. It's interesting they chose that. I think they're kind of backed into a corner here. But it's interesting they chose that. Because remember, if you were here a few weeks ago as we're going through Matthew, you heard how the people were singing, Hosanna to the son of David. The blind people are crying out, heal me, son of David. The crowds are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus enters the temple and the kids are still singing these words. From Psalm 118, Hosanna to the son of David. And the Pharisees get a little bit annoyed by it. But it's interesting here. They're willing to play the game. Whose son is the Messiah? The son of David. Where is this going? (laughs) The son of David. And then Jesus has a question rooted in Psalm 110. Fun fact, Psalm 110 might be the chapter of the Old Testament most frequently quoted by the New Testament. It's the part of the Hebrew Bible that the New Testament goes back to most often, perhaps. Fun fact, somewhat interesting at least. 
And Jesus goes to this famous psalm, Psalm 110, and he says, okay, good. The Messiah is David's son. But then how is it that David, speaking in the spirit, calls the Messiah, the Christ, Christ, Messiah, same word, different language backgrounds, Messiah, Hebrew, Christos, Mashiach, Hebrew, Christos, Greek, Messiah, Hebrew, you got it. How is it that David, in the Spirit, calls the Messiah Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, how can, how does David end up calling this future king his Lord? And then I'm just going to do this quickly. I mentioned a few weeks ago, there's kind of a friends like these effect that Jesus tends to use with the Pharisees. If I say with friends like these, you know where it's going. Who needs enemies? There's kind of a friends like these effect. The Lord said to my Lord, hmm, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies. (laughs) Who's acting like enemies right now? Who's being put in their place in the big picture? Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Here's my question for us. What is Jesus saying and how how does that resolve things? Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that Christ is King David's son, yet also King David's superior. So with whatever respect you would want to treat great King David, keep in mind that his son isn't just mini David, he's mega David. His son is not just junior, his son is his superior. There is a greater fulfillment of God's promises, which David himself knew because of the huge promises that David received from the Lord recorded in 2 Samuel 7, which Solomon couldn't fulfill and the kings after Solomon couldn't fulfill and the kings after them couldn't fulfill. There are these huge promises that David couldn't fulfill and none of his descendants had fulfilled, which might lead us to conclude maybe there's just some little king who can fulfill a few of the promises. And Jesus says, don't shrivel down your expectations too much. If our allegiance is ultimately to Caesar, and if we believe in the God of resurrections, and if it is him that we are serving, then we have great reason to hope. In what great kings David's even greater, superior, far surpassing son will bring about in his reign through his kingdom. Why is Jesus saying that? I mentioned a moment ago the quote from C.S. Lewis. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by, by seeing it, but because by it I see everything else. 
There's a sense in this passage in which in answering other people's questions, Jesus has helped us see the whole world a little more clearly. But Jesus says there's something that above all else you must see. You must see the supremacy of the Son of David over everything and everybody else. Jesus is doing this not just as an academic exercise so that someone can finally get stumped and get some candy. Jesus is doing this intentionally to draw attention to his own identity and the purpose of his mission, which will result in enemies being humbled, judged, lowered. But for all who believe in him, for all who hail him as not just a little king, but as the king of kings, for all who submit and surrender to his glorious majesty, this is good news. Because Jesus came... Not just to give us answers to our deepest questions. But Jesus came to be the answer to our deepest problems. Why is he in Jerusalem? Not just for Q&A sessions that will answer life's most befuddling questions. He's in Jerusalem to give his life as a ransom for many. So that through the freedom that is found in being forgiven by Him, in being loved by Him, in being embraced by Him, in being brought into the kingdom of God by Him, even wandering rebels like you and me, who left to ourselves would just be asking skeptical questions from the back row, even wandering and skeptical rebels like you and me. Through what he has done on our behalf, we are invited to a seat at the table in the forever feast with God's forever king. I hope that as we hear this Q&A session today, I hope that it helps you see everything else a little more clearly. But I hope above all, as we listen to these questions and these answers, I hope, I hope it helps you see him more clearly. Great David's greater son. Great David's son, yet David's superior. The king who came not only to conquer, but to love and to give his life as a liberating ransom for us. Thanks be to his name. At this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward.